Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film. I'm your host, Nikki. And first, uh, side note, but I want to give a big ass shout out to Pablo Rochat, Drake, 21 Savage, and Project Pat for the Knife Talk video that dropped Friday, November 5th. If you haven't seen it, it's the perfect music video for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities, as we like to say. You thought I forgot, didn't you? I didn't forget. Okay. So, Herc Harvey's 1962 cult classic, Carnival of Souls, is terrifying already. And that's the first clip that we get with Candace Hill Goss's mouth mysteriously moving in sync with Project Pack's gang shit that he's talking in these lyrics. So, and during the video, we get multiple clips from the, that film, Carnival of Souls, as well as animated clips from like Betty Boop, Mighty Mouse, some like old Halloween clips, and other vintage black and white clips, all made even more terrifying by these rapping lips superimposed on top of them. The cartoons are very well edited, but the way the lips move in the live action clips is completely unsettling. It's And the interwoven purge-like present-day clips of Drake, 21, and Pat looking menacingly into security cameras, it gives the whole video sort of like a Night of the Living Dead vibe, a film that we'll be covering very soon. And I think there's clips of Night of the Living Dead also interlaced into the film as well. So I just wanted to mention this video really quickly because I'm a Drake fan. I'm a Scorpio. This is one of my top songs on CLB. And of course, I love me some old shit. So this sort of felt like it was like a late birthday gift to me. You know? So thanks, Pablo. Thanks, Drake. Yeah. On to our feature film, where we're sticking with a family theme for the holidays, as we said. So last week, we covered our milfy classic, The Graduate. And this week, we're going to get a little sugar daddy action going with our 1955 musical, Daddy Long Legs. This film stars two amazing dancers, a 56-year-old Fred Astaire and his then 24-year-old protege, Leslie Caron. Now, around this time, he did three French-themed films, this being the second and also being the most popular, and all of them did moderately well at the box office. And musicals were really trendy at the time, think like um, La La Land, and this was the first one that Fred had shot in widescreen cinemascope, making the dance stages look much larger, the dance scenes looked more broad and just way more beautiful. Now, when I first decided to do this podcast back in the back back day, which is like just a couple months ago, this was originally going to be the first movie that I did because this is the perfect example of a film frozen in time that I don't think would hold up for a beat for beat remake. They did make a Korean remake of this because this is based on a 1912 book and they did a Korean remake of it as well, but the plot was slightly different and the ending was also different. So it worked a little bit better for the modern day. And this was back in, I believe, 2009. Um, But this 1955 version definitely sits in its own place. There's emotional abandonment and attachment anxiety all up and through this film. But of course, that wasn't being thought about in 1955. So it's a love story. Now, as you know, with our cast list, we don't give you the whole recipe. We just give you the mains. So we have Fred Astaire playing Jervis Pendleton III, Leslie Caron as Julie Andre, Terry Moore as Linda Pendleton, Pendleton, 
uh, Thelma Ritter as Miss Pritchard and Fred Clark as Griggs, one of our favorite boys in the film. So now that we have our players, we can what? Press play. So we opened up to a stylized opening credit sequence with a big brassy band music booming and an animated picture of our stars Fred and Leslie in the back dancing behind the credits. It's just a still shot, no real animation, but it's drawn very cute. And the text kind of reminds me of like the opening to I Love Lucy or like even better, um, I Dream of Jeannie, that same kind of like font and like fun, pointy font. It feels very romantic comedy for the time. As our opening sequence ends, we fade into a car driving up to Pendleton House, holding an art gallery. And the tour guide there is showing a large group around as a man uh, walks in and goes up a broad staircase, opens a door, and letting out some very loud jazz music into this quiet gallery. And the guide obviously knows that this happens all the time and continues his tour, taking everyone over to the painting of the Pendleton Heirs. He shows a picture of Jervis Pendleton I, a stern-looking man with a beard, then moves over to Jervis Pendleton II, who looks just like Fred Astaire as we know him. And the tour guide notices a woman has snuck away from the group and is walking up the staircase when he asks her to return. She inquires about what's up there because she heard the music coming out, and he reveals that it's Jervis III, then shows his painting, which is a bit more abstract, like a Picasso. So we know he's different, different. Cut to Jervis Pendleton III upstairs playing the drums along with a jazz record while smoking a pipe. And his office is apparently soundproof and dude isn't doing any actual work. He just buys some stealth stocks, gambles a bit. He seems to be in a lot of things, but not really doing much. He's the heir to a fortune, so he doesn't have to do much of anything, but he's involved in a lot of things. But he also plays his drums a lot and chills a lot. And his assistant, Griggs, though... He has to keep him in line and people keep calling for Jarvis and Griggs has to answer the phone. So he shuts the record off so Jarvis can actually work. And apparently the U.S. State Department is asking this dude to go on an economic crisis mission to France. And Griggs is trying to explain why it's important, but Jarvis already knows he it's, he's up on the job situation, the food situation, the minor situation out there. He's got it on lock. Even though he's chilling, he knows what's up. So Griggs turns his music back on for him because my boy's on it. Like, what can you do? So now we have our first musical number, History of the Beat, which is all about how Jervis can stay on beat. And my guy is dancing while making beats on the ground with his drumsticks, throwing the sticks on the ground, and they bounce back up on beat. He's Fred is one of the greatest dancers of all time. Very light airy on his feet, never looks like he gets tired, and he's so fun to watch. Now, one thing to note is that when this film was in production, Fred Astaire's wife actually had just passed, and they halted production for a while because she passed, but he decided to go ahead and do the film. So even though this number is amazing, this was the first one that they filmed. So it doesn't quite feel as powerful as some of the other numbers or some of the other numbers that Fred Astaire is famous for in some of his other films. But after his big finish, he asks Griggs what he thinks. And Griggs is like, I just want to know if we go into France. And of course, they're going. So we get to France and they're driving through a small farm town and end up running off the road trying to avoid a horse and buggy. Now, there's like eight people gathered at this car trying to get it out of this mud hole. Jervis tries to make a suggestion, but this lady tells him to chill because, like, they know what they're doing. 
They don't, and they end up covered in mud trying to get the car out. And Jervis decides he's going to just leave and find a farmhouse or somewhere with a phone. But he tells Greg to offer them all some brandy that's in his car. The lady is like, I don't know why the president chose him for this mission. But then she sees Greg's pull some golf clubs out of the car, and she's like, oh, lols. <laughs> Jervis walks up on this big-ass house with a gate and rings the bell, and this young boy comes to the gate. After a little French conversation, the boy tells him he'll take him to the headmistress as this is an orphanage. So while he's waiting in her office, he looks out the window and sees a beautiful girl with short brown hair and very blue eyes whistling and calling the children over for their meal. At the table, she tells the children that they are only speaking English for lunch today, but in exchange, they can have whatever they want for lunch. So they're only eating soup, but the children all play pretend and they act like they're getting their meal of choice. Hamburger, ice cream, so cute. And Jervis obviously thinks it's cute too because he's been watching this whole time. The headmistress comes downstairs and after a brief convo, she says they don't have a phone. She laughs when Jervis asks if there's a garage nearby. She tells him that the only person with a car within miles is their gardener, but the car is old, old. But he says it's better than nothing, so he wants to borrow it so he can get to town. After the headmistress calls out to the girl outside to find out where the gardener is, he finds out that her name is Julie Angelet, and she's been at the orphanage all 18 years of her life. The headmistress even named her. So as the headmistress goes to find the gardener, Jervis watches Julie teach the children English, and this is our second musical number. C-A-T spells cat. R-A-T spells rat. Although the cat can catch the rat, the rat can't catch the cat. It's so adorbs. So as the mistress returns, Jervis ends up asking her if anyone's courting Julie. And she says that the only man around is this old widower farmer down the road. And that's not cute for an 18-year-old girl like Julie. He's like an old man. Now, Jervis gets the car, and it's this old jalopy that is backfiring, smoking, broken down by the time he and Greg's actually make it to the embassy. This man gets inside and immediately starts asking about how to adopt a French orphan, y'all. And you know which one he's trying to adopt out of all the actual kids in the orphanage. And he tells Ambassador Williamson that the girl he's trying to adopt is 18. This man just throws his notebook on the floor because, sir, what? But Jervis says that his motives are pure because this girl has a joy for life, joie de vivre, you know? And this dude at the embassy is like, Jervis, you, you know how this looks, bruh. Like, there's a name for this. And Greggs tries to kindly explain to Jervis that even though his motives are pure, if the press finds out, it might not look so pure. So Jervis decides to pay for this girl to go to school in America and cover all of her expenses, clothes, food, travel, lodging, but anonymously, like a scholarship. And he's on the board at this fictional college called Walston College in Massachusetts. So she doesn't even have to apply. He's just going to kind of plop her in there. Julie's headmistress delivers the news to her. And of course, she's over the moon. So many ooh-la-las. I did not know that French people actually said ooh-la-la. But she says it so many times in this movie. And obviously, Julie wants to know who's doing all this. And of course, the headmistress knows because she met this man. She knows. But he's only going by John Smith. 
and says that he wants her to write him a letter once a month to detail her progress as if he's like her dad, but she cannot know who he is. After she gets the good news, she heads off to bed and she sees some of the kids standing at the window. Now, Jervis came to speak with the gardener about the car, probably to get him a new one or something, and they can see him, but only at a far distance. They can't see any of his features, but Julie misses him, and she asks them to describe him, and they don't have many features, but they say that he's bald, but they don't know because he had on a hat. They say he has um, white hair, which of course he did not, but the shadow made him look tall and thin, so they call him a Papa Fushul. Daddy long legs. So she gets to college, which is a women's only college, perfect for the plot. So she can't really meet that many guys, right? And all the girls are immediately nice, saying hello as she's walking in with her bags. And Julie checks in with a senior in front and is immediately bombarded with this you're an egghead freshman song. You know how, like, you know, they have like hazing songs, but this is very 1950s and cute. Um, I guess all the girls get this song, but Julie is obviously confused because she's not even from here and she's been in an orphanage all her life. Like, what is this? Anyway, she's informed that she's staying in a room with two girls, one of which is Linda Pendleton. You know that last name sounds familiar. Jervis is her uncle. Julie doesn't talk much, but her other roommate, Sally McBride, does. She says they're both taking French, and they expect to get straight A's with Julie's help, of course. And she also expects Julie to cultivate both of them. That's what she says. Since uh, Sally's brother is at Harvard, and I guess she wanted to hook them up, and Julie's uncle spends money like it ain't nothing at the school, so they both feel like they have something that they can offer her. But they're very nice about it. So it's not bribey. It's just sort of like, girl, we have something for you, so help us with our French. It's, it's nice. So the girls start asking where her clothes are, and she's telling them she only has this one little small-ass suitcase that she flew in with, but these two huge trunks showed up full of gorgeous designer clothes. Julie goes to change into her first real, quote, American freshman outfit, and all the girls are amazed at all these beautiful clothes from this secret guardian that no one knows about. So that night, she writes her first letter to Jervis addressing him as Daddy Longlegs. She says she's never had anyone to write to and she's never belonged to anyone before, but it's such a comfortable feeling. And she also promises to make him proud. Hmm. However, Jervis doesn't read these letters. His secretary, Miss Pritchard, reads them. And sometimes she reads them to Mr. Griggs, but Mr. Griggs just has her put them in a file and file them away and Jervis never sees them. She keeps writing letters for more than two years, but of course they go unanswered because Jervis isn't seeing them. And of course this makes her sad. Like, why would you ask me to write you letters if you never intend to respond to them? Especially knowing that she was an orphan and this is like her first taste of a caretaker that she's ever had other than the headmistress at the orphanage. Miss Pritchard is literally weeping reading these letters. This girl is pouring her little heart out and she is getting nothing back from anybody. And back at Jervis's office, Griggs tells him that his sister-in-law, Gertrude, wants to spend the summer at one of his homes with her daughter, Linda, you know, Julie's roommate. And she wants Jervis to have the place redecorated French provincial style. So Jervis starts to tell Griggs to tell her to kick rocks with flip-flops, 
But Griggs knows what's up and tells Jer Gertrude that Jervis would be happy to. Now, Miss Pritchard is reading a letter from Julie to Griggs, and Julie says she is very grateful for the opportunity to go to school, but she would like just one letter. And you can tell Miss Pritchard cares about this little girl, but Griggs is trying to keep this all strictly transactional because it's already weird. However, after Miss Pritchard lays into him about people not being corporations, but having feelings, he goes in to lay into Jervis and basically say the same thing. Jervis has literally forgotten all about this little girl, y'all. It's been like two and a half years. He don't even remember her. Briggs is laying into him about these letters and Jervis is like, oh, I see why you care all of a sudden. You in love with her. Griggs is like, no, it's even worse. She's in love with you. And Jervis is like, what, 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 why? And Griggs is like, you have been really nice to her and you don't even know it. Like you send her on vacations, you get her nice clothes, you get her Christmas gifts. And she even calls you daddy long legs. So now Jervis is intrigued. And Griggs asks Miss Pritchard to bring in the folder with all the letters. Jervis sees how much she's written to him and asks to have his calls held for the afternoon while he reads them. And in the first letter he picks up, she tells him how she imagines him as a Texas millionaire. And Freddie has like a fun dance number with a cowboy hat and boots on. Then she says, no, no, no. I picture you as an international playboy. And he has on like a monocle and like a money bag mustache and a suit and women dancing all around him. But then Julie's like, no, 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 I don't like that thought. So then she thinks of him as a guardian angel. And this is where he looks and dances the most like the Fred Astaire that we know. And this is a super cute dance number. And Julie has on her point toe ballet shoes because ballet, I think, is her natural dance style. Um, whereas uh, Fred Astaire is more jazz. And she has on her pointo ballet shoes and he dances behind her, mirroring her ballet movements, but in a more jazzy style and quote unquote guarding her. It's a gorgeous mixed genre routine that highlights how well both of them dance in their own styles, but also together. And she signs the letter, you're lonesome, Julie. Oh, it's so sad. So now he's gone through all of these letters. And he's going to write her back, right? Because that's like what she wants. She wants a letter back. No, no, not, no, he's not. He calls his sister-in-law, Gertrude, who he never talks to, and asks if she wants to drive up to visit his niece, her daughter, who he hasn't seen since she was six months old. And he literally earlier said that she was an ugly baby. Griggs is like, all I wanted you to do was write a letter, fool. Like what? But Jervis is smitten all over again after reading these letters and he has to see this girl and Gertrude tells him that there's a spring dance that weekend so they agree to go together so Jervis can quote unquote check on his niece they get to the dance and Gertrude tells Jervis to mind his manners because everyone there is young as hell and I'm not quite clear on how old he's supposed to be in this movie but like I said he's in his like 50s in real life at this point so even the movie knows this ain't right because Gertrude is telling him like, look, everybody here young, you don't need to be mixed up in this, but whatever. Jervis doesn't even recognize his own niece and says hi to the wrong girl. He tell, Then he meets her and he tells Linda that he was wrong to not visit her sooner because of how pretty she is, which is weird, Uncle Jarvis. But Linda tells him that she filled out a dance card for him. So if he stands under his initials, he will be claimed like a piece of luggage at an airport. And Gertrude says, 
a well-traveled piece of luggage. I love Gertrude. Anyway, Jervis goes to stand by the boys to get picked up, and they all think he's a professor there, just as he's trying to explain that he's not. In walks Julie with a gorgeous red dress, and he can hardly finish his sentence as soon as he sees her. She walks over and offers her arm to her roommate Sally's brother from Harvard for a dance. And Sally comes over to dance with Uncle Jervis. And he dances through a few people, um, noting that Sally's brother seems to be really taken with Julie, like she's the only one he's dancing with. And he even asks his niece, Linda, if Julie feels the same about him. Linda says she would be crazy not to with a smile, but then we see a small flash of sadness on her face as she watches them dance away. Oh, girl. Dances, Jervis sits down just as Julie walks up for their dance. However, she offers to just talk with him if, instead if he's tired, and he is, of course, very into that. And he asks her if going into the garden alone to talk would ruin her reputation, and she says, Um, it might, but let's go ruin my reputation. Like, she's, like, down the clown, and, of course, he's all in. So they walk out, as Gertrude looks on very disapprovingly, of course. She mentions that he looks familiar. Then she um, pulls him over to a statue of his grandfather, um, Jervis Pendleton I, in the courtyard. He says something about how his grandfather would be so happy spending his days in the middle of a girl's school. Julie asks if his granddad had a weakness for women, and he goes, nope, he had quite a strength, actually. And she's like, did you inherit any of that? And he's like, that's a very direct question. And she's like, yeah, I guess so, but I've never really talked to an uncle before. How do I talk to an uncle? With this, like, flirty-ass smirk on her face. And Jervis is like, you talk to an uncle with respect, and you don't ask questions. You answer them. Now sit down over there on that bench. And she scurries over to the little bench and says, yes, sir. And he's like, not quite that respectful. So she goes, yes, Uncle Jarvis. Oh, okay, girl, I see you. Okay. So he asked her about family. And first she tells a made-up story about her parents being royalty and dying in a shipwreck. But then she says she only tells that story because no one would believe the real one. And they start to dance, and he asks her if she would tell him the truth. And she admits to having a guardian, but she describes him as very tall, very old, bald and white hair. When Jervis makes a joke about how amazing he sounds, she tells him that she plans to go live with him when she graduates, only he doesn't know yet. And of course, Jervis is like, ah, excuse me? Um, but Jervis asks her if her guardian ever comes to visit her. And then she tells him that even though she pretends that he cares about her, he really doesn't. And he doesn't even really respond to her letters. And just as they're getting into some convo, Jimmy McBride comes outside looking for Julie because... Slewfoot is about to come on. And I guess Slewfoot in 1955 was like, back that ass up. <laughs> There's actually a line in the song that's like, you put your posterior out and you manipulate it about. That sounds like back that ass up. That's twerking, right? <laughs> well, anyway, Jervis gets knocked into this dance routine during Slewfoot and, of course, ends up with Julie as a partner. And it seems like he doesn't really know the song, but as these dance routines go, he falls right into the routine. And I just want to note quickly that all the guys at the dance are wearing 
white suit jackets with black pants. And all the women are wearing these like light pastel colors because this is a spring dance. But Jervis is the only one with a black suit jacket. And Julie is the only one with a red dress and red shoes. So obviously both of them are very eye-catching. And they end up doing like a little duet by themselves with everyone clapping around them. Uncle Jarvis and this 20-year-old. But everybody's clapping and rooting them on. And then the whole group joins in again. It's a good old time and the dance number ends. Back at the office on Monday, Griggs comes in for the day and it's raining outside. And he opens the door expecting to hear blaring jazz music. And he's met with this sappy-ass, lovey-dovey music, this dreams song. And Jervis is staring off into space, sitting at his drum set. And he's like playing the cymbals along with it, I think. Or like playing like softly along and singing with the song. But you know, it's not the normal music. So he asked Griggs if he got the mail. And Griggs is like, bruh, I always get the mail. And Griggs said he's mad because it's spring and he always gets irritated. But you can tell he's irritated at Jervis because he knows what this man has on the brain. And he's been trying to avoid this the whole time. Anyway, Jervis ends up reading a letter from Julie where she says that Jimmy McBride, Linda's brother, was supposed to go to some mines in South Africa, but the project blew up. So he's going to have to stay, but he's super disappointed because he wanted to go. And Jervis knows that Jimmy wanted to get with Julie, so he calls Griggs in to find out if they have any mining projects that they can send this boy to. And Griggs is like, they have one in Bolivia. Is that far enough away for you? So obviously he knows the deal. Jervis is like, it's not for me, it's for him. And Griggs is like, oh yeah, mm -hmm, you so nice. So then he asks Griggs to call Mitch Pritchard in to write a letter and and uh, Griggs and and he asked Miss Pritchard to send Julie the record that he was listening to this uh, dream song. And Griggs is like, "Oh, I thought you wanted me to call Miss Pritchard in so you could teach her the slew foot, because clearly he's on it. He knows what's up." Anyway, Jervis invites Linda and Julie on a trip to visit him from Massachusetts in NYC, where he is. But Linda got sick. So miraculously, Julie just came by herself. So they get to this lavish, like 38 star hotel, beautiful. And they have a room for Julie and Linda, but now Julie has it to herself and it's huge. Jervis wanted to go out to dinner, but Julie insists that they have dinner on the balcony so they can look at the city lights. And Jervis makes a comment about how that looks, but he's like, you know what? It don't even matter. So they agree to meet on the balcony at 7 p.m. black tie. She has on a gorgeous white dress and he has on this black suit with a white flower. So I should mention that previously at the dance, he had, he had on a black suit with a red flower. So his accent flower always seems to complement whatever her dress color is. And she tells him that she's figured him out, that once he must have been in love with a tall blonde who married another and he never fell in love again. And he says the tall blonde part is incorrect, but he's like, I loved a short brunette and a redhead and a tall Russian lady. And he names off all these women and hair colors. And she asks him why he never married. And he says jokingly that he loved them madly, but not quite that madly. She says, I think you'll never marry. And he says, that depends. And starts our next uh, musical number, Something's Gotta Give. When an irresistible force such as you meets an old immovable object like me, 
You can bet as sure as you live. Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give. This is my jam. So he is laying it on thick, right? You know, he's he gonna girl, get that ass tonight. So we get another really gorgeous dance number here where they dance on the balcony. And I know I keep talking about how gross their age gap is, but they make a brilliant dancing pair. And like, I always forget how old Fred Astaire is because he dances like a young man. So they dance on the balcony, they dance their way out the door and seemingly dance the night away as images of New York flash in the background. Then they dance their way back to the hotel. He walks her to the door, and it seems like neither one of them really wants the night to end. And Jervis looks down and notes that the morning paper is outside her door. So this is, you know, pretty early in the morning. She asks him if anything happened the day before. He reads a few things out of the paper, including about a wedding, and she seems to, like, lose her breath a little bit. And then she asks him, did anything else happen? And he says, yeah, but it's not in the paper. Then he says goodnight. And he dances back to the elevator to go home. And you can tell they're both very happy. Aw. He gets on one elevator. Guess who gets off the elevator at the hotel? Ambassador Williamson. The American ambassador from France from earlier. Okay. So back at the office. Jervis is looking at rings, friends. He is looking. He picks out this big ass diamond ring and goes, oh, I think this is kind of cute. Yeah. Cute. Y'all, this thing had weight. It looked like heavy. It looked like a paperweight. Anyway, he picks out this ring. Buddy goes back to the hotel to see Julie and have breakfast on the balcony. Guess who's also having breakfast on their balcony? Right next door. The ambassador, y'all. They're talking. And the ambassador is able to suss out first that it's Jervis over there. Then, once he realizes this French girl is talking about arriving from college and how good of a time she had last night, he is like, oh, hell no. So he calls next door and he asks to speak to Jervis. And Jervis goes on the phone. He was like, you nasty. You you despicable and you gross. And I don't, I don't even, I'm mad that I even know you. And Jervis is like, who is this? And the ambassador's like, it's me. Come next door. So Ambassador's like, look, I heard all that stuff she just said on the porch, and you nasty. And Jervis is like, yo, it's not even like that. Like, I think I love her. And the Ambassador's like, well, does she love you? And Jervis is like, well, I was about to ask her that when your ass called. And the Ambassador's like, duh, she's going to say yes. Like, you flewed her out. You bought her all this nice shit. Put her in a nice hotel. You've done all this other stuff. She's going to have to say yes. And he was like, well, she don't even know that I'm her daddy. And he was about to say that I'm her daddy long legs. But he stops himself. And the ambassador's like, um, daddy what? Daddy sugar? Like what? So Jervis is like, look, I mean, she's she's met other dudes. She was talking to a Harvard grad until he got a job in the mines in Bolivia. And the ambassador's like, oh, you mean the Pendleton mines, bruh? And my guy ended up comparing Jervis to King David sending Uriah into battle because he coveted Bathsheba. And he is 100% correct. So Jervis, uh, now he feels bad. And so he's like, I'm going to bring this boy back because you are actually correct about that. Now Jervis feels so bad. So instead of going back to the room, he calls the room from the hallway and says he has to leave. Of course, like he can't just go in there and talk to her like a man. So she's like, oh, okay, cool. Well, when I'm going to see you next. And he's like, oh, well... 
I, I think I gotta go abroad. So it's it's gonna be a minute, like a minute, minute. So she realizes that's cold for her. It's gonna be a no for me, bro. So now sis is, of course, disappointed. She's flew out in New York. She ain't got nobody to hang out with for the next couple days. Jervis said he'll send her a car, whatever she wants for the rest of her trip, pay for her shopping or whatever. But like, she thanks him and says, bon voyage, but they're clearly both hurting about this. Now, it's a week before graduation at the college, and the girls are all packing, but Julie hasn't packed anything yet because she doesn't even know where to send her things. And Sally and Linda are talking about how Uncle Jervis really did a number on her and then disappeared. They know. And meanwhile, Julie's in her room crying at the window and listening to the record that Jervis sent her, the dream song. So she sits down with a series of magazine clippings that she's cut out of Jervis in different places since he's gone abroad, including a photo of him with a pretty blonde at the theater in Paris, which feels very appropriate. She sits down to write a letter to Daddy Longlegs, asking if she can see him because she literally has no one else at this point. And she's crying and her mind shifts us to a dance number where she appears in this hallway that looks like a drawn version of the hotel hallway from earlier. Now, as she enters one of the rooms, she's transformed into this prima donna ballerina in a drawn version of Paris with a whole company of dancers dancing for Jervis as an audience of one. After her big finish, she runs to the box that Jervis is watching from, only to find herself thrown back into the hallway. She enters another door where she appears to be in a sketched version of Hong Kong, dancing a saucy tango while Jervis watches from a table in the corner with two women. And when she finally runs over to him, it's not him, it's another man. Through another door, she's dressed like a mime in the streets of a drawn-out Rio, with a series of mimes and clowns crowding her and keeping her away from Jervis stand while he stands by a wall. All very, you know, metaphorical and artistic, you know. Um, anyway, she comes to, she finishes writing her letter, and she has it sent to Daddy Longlegs. Way back at the office, Miss Pendleton gets the letter and she is devastated for this little girl again, just weeping. But Griggs has things figured out. So she's going to have a trust fund with a monthly stipend and security. But Miss Pendleton is like, look, Griggs, you know me and you both got security and we both know how lame security is. This girl wants love. And Mr. Griggs is like, girl, you better cool it or you're not going to be secure for long. And she's like, child, I qualified for my pension last month, so I don't care. I'll do whatever I got to do. I'll send a letter to get Mr. Pendleton to come back here if I have to. So she decides to say that, send a letter saying that Griggs is terribly ill and Pendleton has to come back. And Griggs just gives up and makes her a drink because if she don't care, what, what he gonna do, child? Nothing. Graduation day comes and Miss Pritchard goes to see Julie graduate. Julie doesn't know her. She doesn't know anybody, so she thinks she's there by herself. And after the graduation, everybody's hugging their families, and Julie goes back to her room, and she cries a little bit because she doesn't have anyone. But Miss Pritchard comes and says she's coming to take Julie to see Daddy Longlegs in New York, but won't say who he is. Meanwhile, Jervis decided that Griggs is going to pretend to be Daddy Longlegs because he knows the plot, and he's like, I'm not doing that. Because he doesn't want to have to deal with the shit, especially since he heard Julie is with Jimmy McBride and he was like, I don't want to have to have this conversation with her. I don't want her to want to dump him to get back with me. Like he got a job in the city now at one of um, the Pendleton labs in the city. He's not doing that great at the lab, but he got him a job here so that he can, you know, be with Julie or whatever. But to his surprise, Julie doesn't come in. 
it's Linda coming to say that she's in love and wants to get married, but her mother doesn't approve. Jervis is skeptical until he finds out that she is talking about being in love with Jimmy McBride because she says she caught him on the rebound. And Jervis is so happy, he tells her he's going to pay for the whole wedding because now he knows Jimmy McBride is out of the way and he can get his boo, I guess. I don't know how that changes anything, but he can get his boo now. I also asked Linda how Julie is doing, and Linda says she's dreadfully unhappy, which puts this big-ass smile on his face. And Linda's like, I knew that would make you happy, Uncle Jervis. They are the worst. So now my boy's good. Miss Pritchard pulls up with Julie to the gallery and tells her to head in so she can meet her daddy long legs. Julie starts walking around inside, but there's a tour going on. And you know my boy, the tour guy, he is always like, stay with the group. Bring your ass over here. So she comes over to the group and she starts walking around with them. And she hears the dream record from before playing in the gallery. And she looks up to see Jervis looking at her. He comes downstairs and she's like, well, why are you there? And how do you know my guardian? When the tour guide points everybody over to the Pendleton galleries and she realizes that she's in Jervis's gallery. Like, it's obviously his place. So he says he came to ask her guardian if he could marry her, but he said that he wanted to ask first. And so she looks at Jervis and says, so why don't you? Ooh, okay. So he sweeps her into his arms and they dance around the gallery and they finally kiss. And I cried because I'm a water sign. The end. So the first thing that I want to talk about here is the actual daddy long leg spider. So I know they never really bring up Daddy Long Legs as an insect in this film. It's usually just referred to because of his uh, shadow, Jervis's shadow. But I want to talk about the Daddy Long Legs for a second because I looked it up on Wikipedia and the description is very interesting and seems very appropriate. Okay, check this out. When Fulcid spiders, which is the, I guess, technical name for them. When fulcid spiders detect prey within their webs, the spiders quickly envelop prey with silk-like material before inflicting a fatal bite. The web of fulcids has no adhesive properties and instead relies on its irregular structure to trap prey. The prey may be eaten immediately or stored for later. When finished feeding, they will clean the web by unhooking the remains of the prey and letting the carcass drop from the web. They are passive against humans. Now, <clears throat> they have no adhesive properties. Their webs have no adhesive properties. There's nothing to make you, the prey stick to them. But they rely on their irregular web structure. So remember at the beginning of our movie, um, we've got our three paintings. We've got Jervis Pendleton the first um, with his very stoic painting, Jervis Pendleton the second um, with a very normal painting, and Jervis Pendleton the third with his jazz music and his very Picasso-like painting, his irregular life structure. He doesn't live by a code. He just kind of does what he wants because he has the means to do so. Now, the spider quickly envelops prey with silk-like material before inflicting a fatal bite. Envelops prey with silk-like material, one of the most expensive materials in the world. 
in order to catch that prey and be able to eat the prey, he has to use silk, expensive things to catch the prey. And they may be immediately eaten or stored for later, like two and a half years later, when someone finally brings her up and says, hey, can you read these letters? Because she's been going through a lot. How appropriate is that? And all of that is kind of like just kind of breezed over and excused in the name of it being a romantic film. Isn't that crazy? Throughout the film, Julie is begging him to see her because she doesn't have anybody and he just leaves her dangling to eat her later. Doesn't even remember she's there. Probably has caught some other prey in the meantime. She's an orphan. He took her out of her comfort zone, a place that she had lived practically since she was born, a place that she would have taken over once the headmistress passed away. She, he said himself, she seemed happy. She seemed full of life, full of joy. He decided, because it was something that he wanted, something that he thought was beautiful, that it should be in a place where he could monitor it. She writes him letters, he doesn't give her anything. He just leaves her dangling there in the web covered in silks for a long time until eventually he goes, oh, I forgot to eat that. Because instead of writing her a letter and giving her what she's asked for, he has to get his fulfillment. You know what I wanted? I was hoping that after Jervis left uh, the hotel and decided to leave Julie, I thought that he would write her a letter as Daddy Longlegs. Like, he couldn't give her himself as Jervis, but he could at least care about her as Daddy Longlegs. But he just basically decided that if he couldn't be with her as Jervis, he was just going to leave. And it made him feel better. And that's trash. Like, real trash. All of those things that he did wrong, mixed in with the gallery, the music, the art, the richness the money. There's no room for anger or for a fight in that room. There's, it's just beauty and, and happiness. If Jervis is asking for her hand in marriage, she literally, like I've said, there's no one else for her. She doesn't have friends other than the people that maybe she's met in college, but it doesn't seem like she made a lot of real connections. If she says no, then what? Is he gonna continue to take care of her? She's done with college. His obligation is technically done. That's why he said he was flying her to America. At this point, it's him or nothing. It doesn't feel like much of a choice when you break it down. But, you know, beautiful gowns, handsome suits, romantic music, slow dancing cheek to cheek, makes everything look more like love. But I guess that's what keeps classic cinema frozen in time. So this was nominated for a few awards for musical direction and Something's Gotta Give was nominated as well, but it didn't win. I would say that this is a maybe C for me. I like musicals. I like Fred Astaire. And if you like musicals, you may like it because it is fun to watch. The musical numbers are beautiful. But honestly, if you're not a big fan of musicals, this podcast will probably do. I I even had to pay to see it. This is the first movie I've actually had to rent for the podcast. 
So if you want to see it, you may have to rent it as well. But um, and if you're not a big fan of musicals, I just gave you the plot. So that's all the time we have for today. Next week, we are watching an absolute classic featuring two brothers who make quite a mess all over a girl. Please like and follow the podcast and rate on whatever platform you use. But I do want to encourage you to try out Good Pods. Um, it's a really cool app that allows you to um, find out what other podcasts your friends are listening to. You can rate specific episodes as well as whole podcasts. And it gives you a pretty good um, idea of what's out there as far as podcasts. If you're as much of a podcast fan as I am, it's a really cool way to find new uh, podcasts. So um, my Good Pods link is in my link in bio, but all of my other links is, are there as well. Um, check us out at the H-L-A-Y-F-P-O-D Instagram. That's Pod Instagram. I usually post movie stills and fun facts over there as well. Our website is also up. Here's lookingpodcast.com. That's H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com. You can listen to episodes and find out a little bit more about me over, over there as well. Follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki and send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings to here's looking podcast at gmail.com. That's once again, H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Love you guys to pieces. And if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Cheers. Cheers.